I mentioned earlier tonight that um, I'm one of the teachers at a four-week, beginning four-week of an eight-week retreat happening at the residential uh, center up on the top of the hill. And we had to make an interesting decision today. A um, photographer from the San Francisco Chronicle came this afternoon and uh, said uh, we're in the middle, the Chronicle is in the middle of preparing a fairly large story about <coughs> Spirit Rockets. It'll come out, I think, a week from now. And uh, they uh, came out a week or so ago and uh, took pictures of the family day here. And uh, uh, maybe they took a picture here in, in, in this Monday night class. But the photographer was back today and said uh, he really wanted to take some pictures at the retreat center of the activity which really is the heart of the understanding around which this whole retreat center is built, that all of these activities are coming together every week to reestablish a commitment to practicing seeing clearly and responding with compassion the family program around our uh, dedication to raising our families that way. It's really built on this very ancient practice of calming the mind and waking it up. And he said, I really need to take pictures of how people practice. Mm -hmm. So uh, the immediate question was, uh, well, you know, how should we do this? Should we do this? And how should we do this? And there are folks sitting and walking and sitting and walking. And all of a sudden, to have a photographer come and take pictures of them sitting and walking. And um, <coughs> so we had little meetings about it and talked about it. And uh, the question of how people would feel about it, we were pretty sure people would feel fine about it. And he said, you know, I'll be in the back of the room anyway. I don't operate with a flash. It's very quiet. Um, I'm really used to doing these kinds of things. And I'll be in the back of the room. I'll take it facing front, so we'll just see you sitting there and mostly the backs of folks. And still, we, we thought, well, we said come back tomorrow. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, tomorrow we'll do it in such and such a time. Because then we thought, well, in the morning, this will the, the, it would at least be the correct thing to say so that in the morning I can tell those folks up there the same thing that I'm telling you now, that we thought back and forth. And we first said, well, you could um, take a picture of the hall while everyone is out walking and see the beautiful hall. I said, but it doesn't look the same with everybody out walking. And, We'll see what people actually do in there. And so we thought about that, and that seemed right. Um, then we thought about, um, can you really take a picture of people praying? Is that an appropriate thing to do? Is that a photographable experience? Because in a sense, this is all a prayer for peace, a peace in one's own heart on behalf of the peace of the world. And he said, trust me, you know, I take pictures all over the place in all kinds of sensitive situations, I'll be all right. And <laughs> so we thought about, well, okay, we're supposed to do that too. So we said, okay, come at a certain time tomorrow morning when we have time in the morning to announce for those folks who don't want to be sitting in the hall at that time, they could sit outside or something else. I imagine they'll all come. But Having had that little flurry and in between all the, someone had to be at a meeting and someone else was leading us sitting, but we flurried that up and figured it out quietly. So, okay, come back tomorrow. And then after he left, I didn't feel at all troubled about our decision to say, okay, come back tomorrow because I'll have time to tell the folks what's happening. But then I thought, First, I thought that's great that the Chronicle is doing that story and that more and more people are getting to know about this practice of cultivating a peaceful heart. First, I thought it's great. And then I thought, I hope they get it about uh, what it is actually, not what it is that we're doing here, but how it is that what we do mitigates in the direction of a peaceful heart. 
If you see a person walking in a particular slow way, or you see a group of people sitting quietly with their eyes closed, what are they doing, actually? And I hope that the article, I'm trusting that the article, uh, will describe what it is that we're doing. So I thought I would talk about a little bit what I think we're doing there. <laughs> because in a sense, I talk about it all the time. I tell people uh, when I begin a Dharma talk, there's actually only one talk. Every week, it's really the same talk, but we call it something else every week. And we maybe come at it through a different uh, emphasis every week. But it's really about how will we reconnect in the middle of a life inevitably challenged, inevitably difficult for all of us, how will we can reconnect with the heart of peacefulness that desires happiness, that's part of our natural birthright in such a way that our behavior and the way we are in the world is transformed and through us that the world is transformed. That's what we're really doing here. Will people see that from a photo in the Chronicle is what I'm thinking about. I particularly, when I think about it, I use the word, um, I hope I just maybe didn't say it yet. What I think this is, is the practice of the purification of the heart. And I'm fairly careful to use the word uh, purification of the heart rather than transformation of the heart. Because transformation sounds to me like we're getting to be something else, or we're transforming our hearts into other kinds of hearts. I think we're really purifying our hearts. I think it's the capacity, the natural capacity, and the natural inclination of the human heart to respond with kindness and with love and compassion. I think when we don't, it's because we're confused and distraught and distracted that our hearts and minds are cluttered, overwrought, and that what's required is really a purification. Don't have to get to be more than human. We just need to get to be wisely human, uncomplicatedly human. One of the cooks here told me a wonderful story today. Marilyn Holmes told me the story. She was eager to tell me to see she said, here's a grandmother's story. So she was waiting for me at lunchtime, I think. She said um, her grandson, Mason, who was four years old, uh, whom she visited yesterday, said to her, Grandma, I, I need to uh, tell you a secret. So um, she leaned over and he whispered in her ear, I love you. Oh. And uh, she said, that's a wonderful secret. And... Uh, Mason has a uh, blanket that he carries with him in the way of Linus. You know, this is really, it's uh, his uh, blanket, Marilyn explains to me, is sort of the embodiment of everything that's good and trustworthy and reliable. And so he has his blanket and he said, um, and my blanket loves you too. <laughs> And my blanket loves everybody in the whole world. And my blanket loves everybody, even if they're dead already. Aww. And Marilyn said, don't you think that's a great meta? I said, I think that's a great meta. When you think about meta, and we say, and all beings on all realms. And Mason has just about covered it with that, all being on all realms. I think actually we could all be like that and somehow before we get the habits of mind that make us more complicated. One of the ways in which I describe mindfulness, intensive mindfulness practice, is that we're really being on the lookout so that we're able to become acquainted in an intimate way with the habits of our own minds so that we'll be able to distinguish these are wholesome habits and these are not wholesome habits. 
And out of the recognition of how much pain is the consequence of unwholesome habits unrecognized, we begin to change them. We really have to get it, I think, over and over and over again about how much pain the unwholesome habits cause in our own hearts and minds and through us, around us, and rippling out from us. I think we can change the world, but we need to do it through the medium of our own hearts. I had uh, uh, an experience around the millennium that I'm still thinking about a lot, and you may have shared it because this is an experience of uh, watching television the last day of the year, and I watched um, public television all day long, and it was really wonderful. Um, just from early in the morning, began to see uh, the camera on um, public television was um, carried us through the day from the dawn of the new decade in uh, the South Pacific, where it was just dawning, and then through the whole globe, time zone by time zone. And of course, they were special uh, programs that were prepared, and so there were festivities, and you got to see what was happening in uh, Japan, and you got to see what was happening in uh, India, and you got to see how it was happening that people were greeting the dawn of the new year around the world. And of course there were uh, performances and people had planned them and programmed them, but um, apart from the fact that they were planned performances, it was wonderful to see that what came out in the planning of all these different people in all these different time zones and all these different venues were prayers for peace, that people spoke in different languages. They looked, well, they looked like people, but they looked like people in different parts of the globe. And uh, sometimes they spoke in English, and sometimes they spoke in languages that I understood, but mostly, often not. But the translation always was that we're hoping for peace, and we're hoping for a world of unity, and we're hoping for a world where people love each other. That's really what people want. The Dalai Lama, when he taught that prayer of cherishing that we did at the last minutes that we sat together, began with his conviction, everybody wants to be happy. Everybody wants to feel loved. Everybody wants to feel connected. I think that's true. I had such a feeling of that from watching people around the world. I had the feeling that everybody, all people are like each other. They smile in the same way. They dance. They sing to show that they're happy. They wave at the camera when they notice the camera is looking at them. We all do the same things. We want to get seen. We, we hug. We just all do the same things when we're happy. And we all want to live happily and peacefully and hopefully. I think that was the great message that I felt all day long and into the evening that people were hoping we could change. The Dalai Lama, in that same uh, question-answer period, uh, someone asked him, do you think there's more love in the world than there used to be, the balance of love and not love? Is it changing? Is there more love? And he said, I think there is. And I love to think that there is. And then sometime in the course of that day, uh, one of the commentators, because they had little breakaway sections where they'd be commentators so-and-so in a round table in Washington and another few people who are experts on something or other speaking from another place. And Someone in the course of the day reminded the viewing audience that one-third of the nations of the world 
art war, having a war now. One third. That's a big percentage. Two thirds aren't having a war. Two thirds have worked it out to be living in a time of peace, but one third are having a war. A couple of days later, someone sent me uh, a statistic. This is a, it says this puts things in perspective. If we could shrink the Earth's population to a village of precisely 100 people, with all the existing human ratios remaining the same, it would look something like the following. There would be 57 Asians, 21 Europeans, 14 from the Western Hemisphere, North and South, 8 Africans. 52 would be female, 48 would be male, 70 would be non-white, 30 would be white, 70 would be non-Christian, 30 would be Christian, 89 would be heterosexual, 11 would be homosexual, 6 people would possess 59% of the entire world's wealth. <laughs> All six would be from the United States. <laughs> 80 would live in substandard housing, 70 would be unable to read, 50 would suffer from malnutrition, one would be near death, one would be near birth, one would have a college education, one would own a computer. When one considers, this goes on to say, our world from such a compressed perspective the need for both acceptance, understanding, and education becomes glaringly apparent. Now think about that. Think about what are the habits of mind that we have not learned enough about so that we've changed that. When I read you that statistic and said 50% of the world doesn't have enough to eat, Heard you say, ah, it isn't really right. It isn't right at all that there are such vast differences in the way we share the resources of this planet. And the Dalai Lama says all of us want to be happy. We think, what are the passions that we haven't yet controlled? What do we not know enough about ourselves so that we do it better. This is Norm Fisher, the abbot, soon to be retiring as abbot of Zen Center. Wrote this in the turning wheel last summer. It's a tremendous shock to realize that you're a human being. For you're a human being, you have a moral sense you feel empathy, remorse, and a strong desire to be compassionate. Vietnam and apartheid and Rwanda and Kosovo and Iraq are blood emblems of our mind of suffering as it meets history. This is what we have to investigate, grieve over, accept, and dedicate ourselves to liberating. I had an experience um, just um, two weeks ago, I think. It startled me. I went to a movie. I went to see The Three Kings. Did you see The Three Kings? Anybody saw The Three Kings? I won't tell you the movie so you can go and see it, but it's a true story. It's a true story about an event that happened um, at the place of the Gulf War, after the war, just after the war, when um, the ceasefire had been established. And um, normally, um, I've, I've, I'm not given, actually, normally to tremendously uh, passionate outbursts. This is the first movie in a 
maybe ever, that I had to run out of because I burst out crying in the middle of it and couldn't stay. And um, I think perhaps, uh, well, doesn't matter if this is why or not why, I had just finished uh, two days before teaching a week retreat. And I think that one of the things that I think and I hope is that when we look really closely, either teaching or sitting a retreat is the same. When we look very closely and we see what habits of ours we have recognized and are still there and are still there and are still there, it's daunting. We become quite um, vulnerable, I think, quite sensitive to the truth of suffering. And without telling you the plot of the movie, I'll tell you that it made for me so clearly the point of unrecognized lust, unrecognized greed, and unrecognized hatred in regular people can lead them to do terrible, terrible things. Regular people out of unrecognized lust do terrible things and cause terrible suffering. And people caught up in the passion of fear and anger and grief are moved to such hatred that they do terrible, terrible, painful things to other people. One of the characters in the movie who actually I felt some sympathy for, for his situation, is able to actually torture someone else. It was impossible for me. I went out. I, I went back in, actually. I went back. I went out and um, put myself together and went back in because I thought I ought to finish it. And then, just to finish the piece of the story, because there are two p ways to finish it, I think it was tremendous to have the experience of hope and to look at people wanting goodness and peace and lovingness and a world of peace and a world of connection and to feel really people have kind and loving hearts. They want the world to be a loving place. I think it's important to see that. I think the other piece of it is we have to see the piece about suffering as well and really see that clearly in order to make sure that our hearts and through our hearts, everybody's hearts, move more in the direction of loving and caring and cherishing and taking care of. I watched how uh, I put myself together that afternoon. I, went in, I finished the movie, and I went to uh, a birthday party that I was meant to be at. And actually, it was a, a child's birthday party with some families there, and uh, actually one of my grandchildren. And so I was meant to be there, and I was a little bit dismayed about maybe I better put myself together a little bit before I get there, because I was feeling very dismayed, actually disheartened about the task is too daunting. Most of the time, I have absolutely the conviction that it is a feasible task, that we can do it, that the world is savable, that we're doing it in time. Most of the time, I feel that. Every once in a while, the balance of power wobbles a little bit, and I feel despair. Left the movie, I felt quite a lot of despair. I went to the birthday party, and I just hung out there. And the view I had, sort of the mini view <coughs> of the whole world on the millennium, was a view of people and their families and their children, and people cherishing their children, and people cherishing other people's children, people caring about each other, <coughs> and people caring enough to have prepared beautiful meals and brought beautiful meals and 
be singing a song on behalf of the birthday child. And what I began to feel as my heart began to pick up a little bit is the other side of the equation. People do, when they are not alert to greed and anger and confusion, terrible things. And people also do when they feel cherished and cared for and loved and taken care of, wonderful things. People have incredible hearts of lovingness. Most of the time, I believe, that if people really saw, saw clearly the truth of how things are in their own minds, in the world, if people really looked at life and said, and realized quite deeply the truth of dukkha, the truth of suffering, that to be in a life is necessarily to be challenged by pain. We, there is no way to do this without pain. The fact that we are always changing and our bodies are changing. We're getting older if we're lucky enough to get older. And because things change, we lose people that we love, either at a young age or an old age. We lose our own stamina and our own health as we get older. We lose friendships. We lose the wishes and the hopes and the dreams that we had when we were young that didn't come to pass. We have to make new ones. A friend of mine has uh, called that place the new normal that we have a sense of what's normal for us, and then things change. Parts of us don't work anymore. And then we have to have a new normal. This is the new normal. I was thinking the other day about, I think somebody had written on their interview sheets, I'm, uh, it says in the back, is there anything that we should know about you particularly to help you in this retreat? And somebody very sweetly wrote, uh-huh, this is a this time in my life I'm going through uh, uh, a time of transition. I thought to myself, we all are, you know, every day, uh, transiting from the morning to the evening. Now some transits are a little harder than others, really, but, but it's one continual accommodating to the situation. Here's the next thing. Can you accommodate? Here's the next thing. Can you accommodate? Some of them bigger, some of them littler. But if we recognize that, just like Norm said in the beginning of, uh, of that passage I read to you, it's very hard to be a human being. It's very hard to be a human being and with a moral sense and look around in the world. It's very hard to be a human being. Even before we look in the world, if we look at our own lives, all the accommodations that we have to have, and then past that, if we look not only at the pain inherent in the situation of being alive in a body, in a relationship, in a world, in which there are, of course, many, many joys as well, there's the extra suffering that we create in the mind <coughs> when we're not able to deal with the challenges, when we're not able to accommodate what needs to be accommodated, when out of greed or hatred or delusion we create extra pain in the world on what is already there, I am convinced that if we saw absolutely clearly, we would be so dedicated to not adding another ounce of pain to the world that we would be absolutely impeccable in what we did. And we would be dedicated to seeing clearly in order to protect that impeccability. We would be so aroused in our zeal to see clearly. Sometimes that sounds like it would be such a, uh, uh, a difficult way to live. I actually think it's the easiest way to live. I think, uh, I think it's a way of life that makes us happy. 
I have a friend who I think of as uh, being particularly kind. We're all kind. But this particular friend of mine, outstandingly kind. He always makes the kindest choice. I just admire him so much. And uh, just last week, he did something that uh, I saw him doing. It was really a remarkably kind thing. And I said, just in a burst of appreciation, I said, you're really so good. You're really good. And uh, I was so pleased because he said, well, you know, it makes me happy. And I was so pleased on two scores. First of all, I was pleased that he didn't protest and say, no, 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 I'm not that good. <laughs> Everybody's good. <laughs> We're all good. Because we know each other well. We love each other a lot. I know he loves me a lot. I know he thinks I'm good. I was pleased that he was able to really take that for himself and to appreciate that as his own view of himself. It's wonderful to think of oneself as good mm -hmm. and to recognize, actually, that that's the source of great happiness. That's actually that lovely phrase, uh, the bliss of blamelessness. But this is one step. That's really a lovely Buddhist phrase when, that we teach when we teach ethics and precepts and morality, the bliss of blamelessness. But this good is more than blameless. Blameless means I didn't do any harm. Good means I looked for some opportunities, maybe every opportunity, to ease suffering, to do something good. And it makes you happy. And it's paradoxical to me. Or it might be paradoxical, but I see how it's not. might be paradoxical if I didn't understand it, to say that I think that this practice which I think is the practice of happiness, really, comes to happiness through a clear understanding of suffering and the dedication to alleviating it. I think you really need, we, all of us, really need to see suffering clearly again and again and again. I don't, I have not, in my own experience, discovered the end of getting stuck in greed and hatred, lust, irritability, even that I know that those are the mind states that do not make me happy. We need to continually be waking up. Last week it happened to me Last Tuesday, today is a week, today there was a memorial service for um, the people on the flight that crashed outside of Los Angeles last week. And there were 85 passengers, five crew on that flight. It would be terrible if it were any flight, of course, but that's something particularly poignant. Maybe it couldn't be any more poignant than poignant, but coming from a holiday destination, so people on a holiday, all flying back to San Francisco, and suddenly here's this prime crash. And I heard about it on Thursday afternoon, and Tuesday afternoon, and knew about it, and I felt very dismayed about it, as I'm sure you all did. And on Wednesday morning, uh, I was driving here early in the morning on Wednesday because uh, we have a class here on Wednesday mornings from 9 to 11. And on some days of the month, we actually come even earlier, a smaller group, and so we can have some more intimate discussions about practice and the technical questions about practice. We talk about ethics. So it was one of those mornings. And on the way driving here, just driving along, I uh, came into my mind a thought about an interchange I had had with a family member that very morning that I had taken umbrage about, been a little annoyed about, maybe a lot annoyed about. <laughs> and I'm driving along and I was thinking about it. And I was thinking about, well, 
when I see that person the next, I'm going to tell them in such and such a nice way, of course, but <laughs> I'll bring up that grievance that I have about when you said this, I felt that. And of course, I won't say it in a bad way, but nevertheless, I'll, my point will get made. And they'll feel sufficiently bad about having <laughs> And I caught myself doing it as I was driving along. And I thought to myself, what are you doing? Uh, I mean, here you are. I mean, you're going to teach about a heart of kindness. <laughs> and... Um, you're, you know, rehearsing a scene of causing someone discomfort. Uh, and I'd like to tell you that I, having realized that, dropped it right away, but I didn't. Uh, I kind of noticed that I, I decided right away, of course, well, I wouldn't bring it up. I mean, that I had to get rid of right away. That wouldn't fly. But but gnawed over a little bit in my mind, kind of like a dog chewing on a bone, you know. But actually, it's a bitter bone, but you keep on chewing on it. There's something odd about the habits of the mind. There's something seductive about they did me wrong, you know, and there's a kind of a catch to it. And I found my mind just kind of chewing it over. I'll, uh, of course, I won't tell them because that really doesn't fly. I can't let myself do that. But I can allow myself to feel grumbly about it for a while. I'm certainly worth a little bit of grumbly mind. <laughs> so I get over here, and there's a number of folks here early in the morning, and I'm sitting here. I'm sitting, and every once in a while, mine grumbles a little bit, grumble, grumble. But I'm sitting, I'm not going to say anything about it, grumble, grumble. And then by and by, it's the end of the sitting, and I ring the bell. And uh, people began to ask questions about practice. I think the question was, uh, when a feeling arises, should I go with the feeling or go back to the breath? Uh, I think that was the question that brought up the discussion. Should I investigate the feeling, go with the breath? Should What should I do? Somehow, the answer to that, it's got so there are numbers of answers, sometimes A, sometimes B. Depending, one goes to the breath. If one's intention is to compose the mind and the feeling is... Um, too complex to be seen clearly, we could compose our hearts and minds first and then allow that thought, that feeling to come back and then perhaps see it more clearly. We could go back to a balancing place. We could stay just with the feeling and not with the story. Sometimes it's appropriate to be with the story for whatever new information it might <coughs> yield up that we don't know before. Not that we'll figure it out, but that it will arise as an insight. There are all kinds of skillful answers to the question. I don't remember which one I gave or if I gave, because what soon happened was someone else wanted to talk about um, their strong feeling, the strong feeling of um, that had come up for them in the sitting that morning of the possibility of a peaceful heart. And they were talking about how uh, distressed they had been on their way driving over because um, a friend of the person who said this, it's a person I know by name and a little bit because she's a person who practices at Spirit Rock quite a lot and had been here the week previously at the Metta retreat. That person's sister's two grandchildren were on the flight. Mm -hmm. And as soon as she said that, the story became real. As soon as you know something about it, it's not an event that happened far away. It's an event that happens all the time. Someone else in the room uh, knew two of the people on that flight who were from Mill Valley. You may have known people on that flight. 
And they just all talk to each other about it because my role in that group is just to facilitate the discussion. I was aware, as I sat, of a certain real contrition <coughs> on my part for the fact that I had for any amount of time let that grudge fill up my mind space. Even that I knew, even that it happened spontaneously, even that on recognizing it, I immediately knew I wouldn't bring it up, that I continued it at all and filled up a mind space with grudge and conditioned that sort of irritability and ill will. I felt real contrition about it, that I hope I don't do that again, that I hope I don't need to continually be startled out of a really self-preoccupation because that's what it is. I was wronged. I was hurt. This happened to me. Really, it's a thing that happens when we allow our attention to be only on ourselves. And then our story, it's really a very small story, looms up and fills up all the space. If I can keep my vision enough on myself, obviously, to take care of myself and be responsive to myself, in the natural and normal and healthy way that we're all meant to do. But really, if I can keep myself really looking at what's true out there, the world is full of difficulties. Just if nothing grievous ever happened, just the go getting old and getting sick and losing each other, losing hopes, the world is full of natural disasters in which there are earthquakes and typhoons and all of a sudden, people are lost and to each other. It's so frail, so precarious. All of our own lives and all of our relationships, they hang really on such a tenuous thread of moment to moment. Each time we say to somebody, I'll see you tomorrow, it's a guess. My friends and I mostly, when we hang up the telephone, don't say goodbye. We say, I love you. You could think about it being as macabre, you know, like if um, this was the last thing you were to say to somebody, what would you want it to be? But it's not that we're doing it because it's macabre or that we're preoccupied with the idea that we might never say anything again to each other. It's just, I think, a more helpful piece of information. <laughs> Makes a good feeling. I mean, you have to have some sign that you're about to hang up, so it's not just quiet. <laughs> That's a sign. I love you. So really I want to talk about metta practice, which is the other half of the paying attention. I think that it's so the other half of paying attention that it's really not another practice. The more years I practice and teach, the more it seems clear to me that uh, mindfulness and metta are completely intertwined interdependent, that they're integral to each other, that they're implicit in each other, that uh, it's not possible, I think, to pay careful attention without some amount of tender heart towards yourself. It's hard to pay attention, that really in order to be able to hold every moment of recognition in some sort of balance, you have to forgive it. You have to forgive yourself for having that thought, for having that feeling. If I am going to recognize that my mind makes irritable, <coughs> actually ill-will plans, <laughs> and that it doesn't let them go always right that second, I have to be able to forgive myself, too, and say, okay, Sylvia, you're a work in progress. You're trying hard. 
And then I have to forgive everybody else who's a work in progress. We're all works in progress. I don't think it's possible to do mindfulness practice without a loving, kind, forgiving, compassionate heart. And I don't think it's possible to do it and not condition a loving and compassionate, kind, forgiving heart. Because if we can really hold still long enough to see what's true, it's really heartbreaking what's true. Here's this beautiful world, this fantastic, amazing cosmos. I hope you saw the uh, moonset tonight. It was the most beautiful new crescent moon. And what looks like the brightest star in the sky is actually Mercury. And you can see it just this time of year because the twilight is very long. As soon as um, it gets much darker, you don't see it. It sets. So it's really wonderful. Look tomorrow night. Be a little bit more moon. Um, look at... Um, Twilight. I'm trying to remember what time, whether it was 6.15 or quarter to 7. Six, around 6-ish. Around 6-ish. I think we need to have really a loving heart to be able to stand looking clearly at the world. And I think if we practice loving, we'll be able to see clearly. If we practice loving and connect really with the truth of our own hearts, which are loving and kind and compassionate, then we'll be able to really look out at the world, see the pain in it, and not flinch from it, not run out from it, not run out of the movies, stay in the movies, and really respond to it. I think that that's really why we respond with such, uh, we're so moved by stories of people who uh, really in extraordinary circumstances go and care for people. I, uh, I think about organizations like Doctors Without Boundaries that go to all the countries in the world where there are tremendous difficulties and really in dangerous situations take care of people. Or I saw um, television clips of the uh, um, torrential rains and floods in Venezuela. And there were helicopter rescue teams that came over people hanging on by a tree limb or a rooftop. And uh, the helicopters would let down ropes. And specially trained people would come down the ropes to pick up one person at a time, tie them onto the rope, and rescue them one by one and bring them up into the helicopter. And when we see that, doesn't your hair stand on end when you hear that? Every time, I, I remember a long time ago, many years, probably 15 years ago, there was a plane crash at just on takeoff into the Potomac. <coughs> and there was a lot of film of it afterwards. And the thing that most struck me were the fact that people pulled over, who were on the bridge over the Potomac, pulled over, got out of their car, and leaped into the water with ice, really ice floating in it, to try to rescue people. Actually, one or at least one, maybe two people died, drowned, who weren't in the plane, who jumped in to save people. It's thrilling for me to think about the fact that the human heart has the, really the potential to outdo itself, to really be absolutely oriented outside of itself in terms of taking care. <coughs> that thrills me. I think about that practice of connecting with our good heart, being that way of reassuring ourselves that we are all that person. We do it in different ways, you know. We can't all come down out of a helicopter. We're not all strong enough. 
And we all have different fear systems, so we're really not all fearless enough. But we can, all of us, in our own way, be agents of support to other people, agents of comfort. And I really think that's what makes us happy and peaceful. I don't think it's easy. I thought about um, I thought about one of the things that I hoped as people become more and more aware of this kind of way of practicing. Thinking back that Chronicle will do this big story about us. And I think that's wonderful and Dharma's in Time magazine and Dharma's in Newsweek and people heard of Buddhism and people heard about spirituality and it's no longer peculiar. I hope that what is clear in that article and increasingly clear in people's minds is that it's not for us that we're doing it. It's through us that we're doing it. I got a catalog in the mail this morning. I won't tell you what catalog it is because I'm about to say something about it, about a moment of dismay. I even thought about whether I should say it to you. But, but it's about a hope that I have. I, I, I read the whole catalog. It was an interesting, actually, experiment in consciousness for me because it's a catalog of spiritual things you can buy. <laughs> and some of them are quite expensive. <laughs> and I thought to myself, uh, I began to think about how many inoculations against different diseases uh, this amount of money would pay for, or uh, how many um, school lunch programs, or how many whatever. And I hoped a lot. I thought to myself, Oh, don't have such a bad attitude, Sylvia. Maybe this will be exciting. Maybe if uh, practice looks so interesting and fun, maybe more people will want to do it. And ultimately, having started because of their own pain and because of they are reassured, actually, I think a little bit more than... Uh, makes it look a little simpler than it is, actually. Um, maybe they'll be reassured about um, it's not so hard to change your heart. Maybe they'll be inspired to practice. Maybe it's good for people. And then I read through more of the magazine and saw more of the things that are for sale in it. And some of the things that I know about, some things that my friends did. And I thought, well, this is a good thing. Maybe it's good that this catalog is here. Then I thought to myself, as I'm having these dismayed thoughts about this catalog, what will happen to me if I turn the page and I see something that I did on the next page? Will I change my mind about the catalog? Will I be seduced by it? And I hoped I wouldn't. But it didn't happen because I'm not in the catalog. But I really hope that lots of people are intrigued and called to practice. I thought I would show you as the last thing. I got this recently uh, because I bought some uh, new uh, eye makeup from a company called Origins. Uh, that's a very nice uh, makeup cosmetic company that uses all kinds of wonderful ingredients, they say. Um, and uh, I, I, so also I'm telling you that I also spend money on things other than <laughs> spend, uh, just necessities but I and actually I bought I suppose enough eye makeup to uh, get this free present and uh, <laughs> it's called uh, it's gumballs and it's ca and it's called the peace of mind gumballs. So, um, 
on the one hand, I thought to myself, this is really a good hopeful millennial sign that, <laughs> that cosmetic companies, are, which is such a mainstream thing, in the middle of Macy's, uh, are hoping to sell their cosmetics by suggesting that something about those cosmetics and via the cosmetics, these gumballs, will create a certain state called peace of mind, thereby counting on the fact that people will resonate to the idea of peace of mind. That peace of mind is a word that has made it into the mainstream. That's, I think, a good thing that I don't know if um, 20 years ago there would have been peace of mind gumballs <laughs> and uh, that it would be so part of the culture. So I don't know if this catalog is a good thing or a bad thing or if the gumballs are or if the Chronicle article will be. The gumballs. I was going to give them out <laughs> tonight. I don't have enough, but if you'd like a gumball, <laughs> I have been holding on to them for a while. So I thought as a uh, gesture of generosity, I would give out my gumballs to the first 25 people who came up to get <laughs> But I think that, uh, I, I, I like to think that this millennium marks a time in history where two-thirds of the world, at least, is peaceful, and uh, half the world, at least, has enough to eat. And enough of the world, I'm hoping, has a sense of the possibility of peace of mind while in a body, in a life. And that what we can do with the great good fortune of being in a place of being well enough able to practice seeing clearly and responding kindly, that we'll really do it. And we'll contribute to those folks in the world, near and far, in this tradition and in all traditions, who are dedicated <coughs> to moving that balance towards more and more loving in the world. So I'm very glad that you were here tonight. Um, and I'd like to invite you to sit for one minute and uh, <coughs> wish with me for peace for all the world. May all beings be safe and free of danger. May all beings live unafraid. May all beings know the joy of connection, feel cherished and loved. May all beings be as at ease in their bodies as they can be. May all beings have an ease in their life, a sense of being protected. May all human beings have someone who knows their name and cares.
May all beings everywhere be peaceful. May all beings everywhere be happy. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.